0: you're listening to the entrepreneur's agony aunt podcast keeping it real telling the story like it is because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made hello i'm Vicky brock and you're listening to the entrepreneur agony aunt podcast It's a short and sweet episode this week, as my guest, Chris Newman, has to be on stage downstairs in less than half an hour, so I am really grateful he has squeezed in time to speak with us first. Chris is a serial entrepreneur and startup employee turned angel investor who has made investments into startups in the US, Canada, and the UK. Taking what he has learned from the entrepreneur turned investor experience He recently launched Commonwealth Ventures with the aim of sharing the replicable aspects of the Silicon Valley process with the rest of the world. Chris has just arrived in the UK from San Francisco to give a week of fireside chats up and down the country with Barclays Eagle Labs to help early stage founders separate fact from fiction when it comes to Silicon Valley myths and the reality of startup fundraising. Welcome to the podcast, Chris, and welcome to the country on your whistle-stop tour, uh, literally one end of the UK to the other. Um, Perhaps you could give us a quick overview of your story to this point, and actually a little bit more about why you're doing this new venture at this moment in time. Sure.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Vicky. Um, I am a former entrepreneur. I was lucky enough to spend about 15 years working in uh, what we now call the big data space, Uh, I've been a part of five startups, uh, two of which I was the founder of, uh, two of which raised meaningful venture capital and had uh, uh, successful exits. After that, I joined 500 Startups, the... uh, world spread seed fund and accelerator uh, as a venture partner where I designed and launched the data accelerator, which was focused on big data machine learning and AI companies. Uh, From that accelerator, we invested in companies all over the world, ranging from Canada and the UK to Italy and the Middle East and Nigeria. After I left 500 Startups, I founded an organization called Commonwealth Ventures with the goal of helping to take the experience that is traditionally locked away in the Silicon Valley and only available to those who are able to be located there and use that to find ways to augment the great efforts that are being done in startup ecosystems around the world. The question we're trying to answer is how can we better help founders in places like Edinburgh learn from the Silicon Valley? in ways that allow them to be more globally successful.
0: Fantastic. So actually, you're not going to be recommending that we all uh, sell up everything we own to be able to get a little bed in some horrid corner in Silicon Valley. There are actually other ways that startups and elsewhere in the world can capitalize on what they they have.
1: Exactly. I think, as with with any place, if you're not physically there, then your knowledge of that uh, place is very much biased based on what you see in the media and what you read about.
0: Especially if you're a Silicon Valley addict, as I am. (laughs)
1: Exactly. And so, you know, you usually end up with a slightly skewed view. And what we're trying to do, amongst other things, is help startup founders be better informed. Um, Typically in ecosystems outside of the US, the Various stakeholders in those ecosystems really only have a sense of what's going on in that particular city or country. And so founders can often get the same advice over and over and over. And what we see is we see that when founders go to mentors or investors or other advisors, they end up with surprisingly homogeneous advice. And so what we're trying to do is give a different perspective, not necessarily a better perspective, but a different perspective that can help those founders understand earlier on, uh, should I continue on my journey or are there some things that I might want to do a little bit differently? Uh, and that comes from taking the experience that we have in the Valley and saying, well, from a val- Valley perspective... Here's how you look. Here's how we would think about that problem. Mm -hmm. It may or may not be right for you, uh, but it's a different perspective, a complementary perspective.
0: So what do you see actually entrepreneurs and perhaps more importantly, maybe the ecosystem around the entrepreneurs? Because I think it's one of the things I've learned over multiple businesses is do not take any notice that anybody who's not raised money or been anywhere near the process has to tell you about early stage investment because it is not helpful. (laughs) Uh, whereas actually when you meet with people who've been through that process, that people who've written checks will receive them, mm-hmm. um, the, the tactics that they have to offer and the perspective that they have to offer is, is is very different. What do you see people most commonly getting wrong, particularly with early stage fundraising?
1: Yeah, I think one of the most challenging things for emerging startup ecosystems is that many of the angel investors, to your point don't actually have experience in tech or in startups. So what we see is the first or second wave of angel investors tend to be high net worth individuals who want to get involved in the startup ecosystem. They very genuinely want to help support their home city or country. They often try to provide a little bit too much well-meaning advice, and the advice that may have made them successful in some alternate industry or a more mature industry doesn't necessarily always translate into the growth rate and the speed with which tech startups um, exist.
0: Oh, that's a piece of advice I wish I'd had five years ago. Um... <laughs> an investable business actually look like in VC or Silicon Valley terms? Because I think, especially in the UK, we get very used to what you're saying there. The angels, the high net worth individuals who are making a tax deductible investment, uh-huh. a certain check size that happens to go exactly at the 100, 150K uh-huh. limit of their, well, their tax relief. Um No particular necessity or upside for them for there being Mm -hmm. further rounds of investment. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously, that looks very different. When you see these big Silicon Valley-sized deals, what's the difference in expectation and what a good business looks like? I think the
1: biggest difference in expectations is that for a more sophisticated tech investor, the entire return comes from the business being successful. EIS has been an incredibly successful program at getting funding put into tech startups in the UK uh, in ways that we didn't and haven't seen in other ecosystems. But to your point, at the same time, it also holds back many startups. And I think there's an active debate both within the UK and frankly in the Silicon Valley as to whether or not It's net beneficial for the highest growth startups. We certainly see situations where um, companies aren't moving as fast as they might otherwise. And in the worst situations, some of those angel investors actually actively dissuade them from raising follow-on funding because it might impact their tax deduction. Um, And that's quite different from what we see in the Silicon Valley where angel investors have a higher risk tolerance and they understand that their entire return is going to come from whether or not that startup becomes successful. Um, They're not necessarily protecting their downside in a way that we would see in places like the U.K., uh, or it's just a different approach to startup investing.
0: And I have to say, you know, without getting into the details of, of previous rounds, I have absolutely experienced what you talk about there. To the extent that in this current business, I'm not going to take the first stage, the 150K SEIS investment. I don't think that that is a constructive or appropriate thing for a business with very high growth ambitions to take based on exactly the rationale that you're giving there. This listenership is made up of founders, but also the wider entrepreneurial ecosystem. Is there anything that we can think about early on that makes our startups more investable in a way that doesn't actually damage the long-term prospects of the business?
1: I think there's a few things that early founders can and should pay attention to. One is being very honest as to what is the growth trajectory of the business you're trying to create. Um, By virtue of the echo chamber around venture capital as it relates to tech media and and the tech ecosystem, many entrepreneurs see VC funding as sort of the end-all and be-all of creating a company. The fact of the matter is most companies, even in the tech sector, aren't meant to be VC backable. They're never going to be on that growth trajectory. And so founders end up chasing um, unnatural advancements in their company and sometimes creating a company that wasn't the one that they deep down wanted to create by virtue of believing that achieving VC investment is, is a mark of success.
0: Mm. And I think the entrepreneurial ecosystem can make that worse. When, when a area is measuring its success by how much Mm -hmm. money has been raised. Mm -hmm. It it is basically saying one type of business is better than the other, when actually I don't think that is true. They're they're different. Yes,
1: and it's actually taken... Many, many years, only until the last few years, for that even to really hit home in the Silicon Valley. Right now, we're finally seeing a movement where an increasing number of companies are skipping rounds of funding. They're becoming profitable early on, which allows them to go further. And it's now becoming not common, but um, more common to see companies that maybe they raised a little bit of angel funding or bootstrapped. They went for a few years. You never heard of them because they were heads down building their business and making sales and and delighting customers. And suddenly they come out with, you know, 10, 20, 30 million dollars and they've skipped two or three Mm -hmm. steps along the way. And they end up building a very robust, fiscally sustainable business that is incredibly appealing to VCs. Uh, As opposed to limping along on the, okay, we've got to get another chunk of money every 12 months and another chunk and another chunk. Uh, without focusing on the business fundamentals.
0: And that's really interesting that you say that that's appealing to VCs, because I think what we hear at a distance is almost like, if, you, if you're trying to try and do this properly, you're trying to do this the Silicon Valley way, you know, you grow first and you worry about your business model later, and nobody likes a profitable business because you're just not growing fast enough. Is that actually a myth?
1: I think if you talked to Silicon Valley VCs 10 years ago, they would have said that. If you talk to international VCs today who are arguably 10 to 20 years behind the Silicon Valley, that's what they say today. Right. So I spend a lot of time in in Canada. I have a company that I'm on the board of that has been profitable since its inception that recently raised a very significant seed round. And when they went around to Canadian VCs talking about it, that's what they heard from the Canadian VCs, which was, oh, you clearly aren't going fast enough because you're profitable. Uh, And when they talked to the American VCs, they all looked at it and said, yeah, absolutely. This is great. Um, Because American VCs have, have seen more data points of, okay, you know what, the percentage of companies that grow fast and then figure out the business model is actually quite a bit less than we thought it was. Right. Right. And on the flip side, you're seeing founders say, you know what? I want to get profitable earlier so that I can raise money when and if and how I need to.
0: Yeah. And I certainly you know going into this business and my co founders are very aligned with that. One of them is from a M and A background, which which actually really helps. It's the quicker that we can get profitable, the quicker that our, our monthly costs are covered by our revenue, the more freedom, the more choice we have, the stronger position we are when we raise. There's Absolutely. nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. I'm glad that that's sort of meandering its way through the system. Um, What do you think that founders, particularly perhaps looking from the UK, Scotland perspective, are failing to understand about what happens when the money hits their bank? I mean, I particularly, I don't think I had any idea the first time I raised money what the expectation of growth (laughs) really was. And it's terrifying when you've had no money to suddenly be under pressure to spend a lot. Right, right. (laughs) I think a
1: lot of founders don't understand the model that makes venture capital work in terms of ultimately a venture capital fund is an investment vehicle, right? VCs go and they raise money from their investors with a promise or a prospectus to deliver a certain percentage rate of return. Therefore, they're investing in companies needing those companies to return a certain amount. Uh, And that comes through growth, sustainable growth, and and very quick growth. Um, And so if you're taking VC capital, the minute you take venture capital, you have committed to a certain trajectory. Uh, And to my earlier point, that may or may not be the trajectory that deep down you wanted to go on, but you are now committing to those VCs and saying, I am going to build this type of company because... I'm taking your money and I'm promising to you I'm going to try my, my darndest to deliver a certain return. Um, and so you can't take however that you know much that money is and then leave it in the bank, right? They're not giving it to you to cover your existing burn rate or let you meander along at whatever pace you want. They're giving you that money to spur growth, to enable you to go faster and achieve more and set out on that trajectory of high growth. And so... Um, being aware of that and understanding, you know, first and foremost, that VC is not the only way that you can fund a company. But if you do take venture capital money, you are committing to a certain expectation and, and you will be expected to deliver that.
0: Yeah. And, and I think at probably levels that, especially, you know, I, I'm between Edinburgh and Glasgow, there aren't that many people around you in your immediate peer network You've had a lot of money in them who, who you can go talk to. Like, what does good growth look like? What does the right rate of growth look like? And I think having spent a little bit of time in Silicon Valley when, when I was a, a Google partner, um, there you do have just the vocabulary where people are talking, you know, what, what does nailing it really? mean. I think often when we're isolated from that, we don't really understand how to measure our, our own success. Mm-hmm. Is that something that the ecosystems, do you think, could become a little bit more clued up on? Is it just momentum? I think the
1: trap that entrepreneurs, particularly in smaller emerging ecosystems, fall into is only going within their local community to get feedback. The reality is, if you are trying to build a world-changing company, you need to benchmark yourself against other entrepreneurs that are on that journey. And so, if your local ecosystem doesn't have that many entrepreneurs who've been on that journey, it's incumbent on you to go out and find diversity in in your feedback. Um, If you take any sports metaphor, right, if you're trying to be the best football player, uh, you're going to benchmark yourself against the Premier League. You're not going to benchmark yourself against the MLS in the United States, right? And so if you're in that that smaller league, if you really want to be the best, you need to compare yourself to the best. And there's a lot of ways to do that, right? There's uh, an incredible amount of writing that's available now. Social media has made accessing people very easy. Uh, And so you can go to conferences, you can just find people who have similar businesses on LinkedIn or Twitter and reach out to them and say, hey, you know, would you be willing to talk to me for 15 minutes? Um, But ultimately, that responsibility is on the entrepreneur to find that diversity of thought and feedback.
0: I think it's very easy to become very comfortable. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I think the the second that you're staying still and the second that you're starting to enjoy as a founder, as an entrepreneur being a, a big fish in a little pond is you're going too slowly and you're not looking outside your world and you're not kind of shaking yourself up enough. <laughs> um, I appreciate that you need to be on stage very, very soon. Are there any final <laughs> points you'd like to share to help bust a few startup myths around funding?
1: Well, I think the first thing that sort of goes along with the theme that we've, we've talked about is, is VC funding is not the end all and be all. And so creating a successful company does not require vc funding creating a successful company that is is personally successful and satisfying does not require being a billion dollar company right there are many paths to happiness there are many paths to being financially successful and and career successful so uh, i think it's incredibly important to step outside of the echo chamber of the startup ecosystems particularly ones that are relatively small and insular and think about what is it you want to create? What path do you want to go on? If you do want to be incredibly ambitious, then you need to get out of your hometown and go where the action is. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to mean the Silicon Valley. That could mean, hey, you know what? Once a month, I'm going to get on a train and go down to London, mm-hmm. uh, or I'm going to go over to Berlin, or I'm just going to go see what's going on and get different perspectives and opinions. Um, but ultimately, I think for founders who want to go down the path of creating a globally changing um, company, it's important to get outside of your country fast. Um, the best description I ever heard of this was, was from uh, Toby Lutke, who's the founder of Shopify, uh, who was asked, what's the difference between American companies and, and startups in the rest of the world? And to paraphrase what he said is, you know, most founders all over the world, when we think about success, we think about being the biggest company or the best success in our home country. Silicon Valley founders think about winning the world. And when you think that way, you make very different decisions. You benchmark yourself very differently than you would if you're just worried about being the biggest company in Scotland.
0: Thank you, Chris. Uh, I'm going to have that on, a, on the wall in a frame, uh, not least because I just became Estonian, because we've just started up in Estonia simultaneously. Brilliant. I shall rush you downstairs and get you on stage. <laughs> Thanks to Barclays Eagle Labs here in Edinburgh for letting me borrow Chris. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Chris Newman, this week's Entrepreneur Agony You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or YouTube. And as ever, submit your question via my vickybrock.com blog or at the podcast website.